Father, thank you, Lord, that we can get together once again in this new year, 2023. Thank you, Father, that we can start fresh, start new this year. Um, we thank you, Lord, that um, you love us, that you care for us, that we have salvation if we're trusting in Christ, and that's the greatest news of all. And so, Lord, just pray that we grab a hold of that today, that we would bring that with us wherever we go in this new year, that it would be a part of our lives, our families, at work, wherever we are, Lord. May your gospel, your good news, Christ in us, the hope of glory, uh, just shine brightly through us. So, Lord, be with us this morning as we get into your word. Remove any distractions, any hindrances from us loving you, growing in our love for you, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and growing in wisdom, Lord. And so help us to fear you, to know you, and to love you above all things. So please bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this morning's message is Make It Your Ambition to Fear the Lord. Make it your ambition to fear the Lord. And this time of year, there's many New Year's resolutions. And perhaps you're part of the group that does that kind of thing every year. You have a list, maybe. You look it over. Maybe you join a gym for the first time in your life. Or maybe you canceled one before and now you're going to join, like many people. And... If you're like me, or if you have typed in online New Year's resolutions just to see what people are posting online, that's what I did, and I found a couple articles, 65 rewarding New Year's resolutions for a healthy, happy life. Another article, 60 realistic New Year's resolutions you can totally achieve this year. Another one, 23 New Year's resolutions for 2023. Catchy. So some of the ideas listed, build a better budget, practice mindfulness, cook something new each week, read more books, create a cleaning schedule you'll stick to. And a couple weeks ago, I did a message on peace and I shared an article. I think it was like 10 ways to get peace in your life. And as I was reading some of these things for New Year's resolutions, um, it correlated with that message on peace. And that's, I think, ultimately what a lot of people are looking for is peace in their life, hope in their life, satisfaction, fulfillment. And so that is why perhaps many people do these New Year's resolutions. And I think inherently it's not bad to have some sort of list or a New Year's resolution or to look back at the last year and say, these are the things maybe that I didn't do well overall in my life, or these are things I can grow in, and this is something that I want to pursue in this new year. This is what I want to be ambitious about in this new year. I don't think anyone wants to be unhealthy with a bad budget, um, with a dirty house, and ordering Pizza Hut every day. I mean, maybe some people want to live like that, but most people want to be orderly. They want to be healthy. They want to have a good budget. They want to eat healthy for the most part. And at least as Christians, that's what we should want. So I don't think New Year's resolutions are a bad thing in and of themselves. But the question is for us today, what should be our main focus? What is our main purpose? What is our main ambition? Matthew 6:33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. That's a key verse in the Christian faith. Seek first his kingdom above all else that you seek, above all other ambitions, all things that you pursue, pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. And then we have the promise that all these other things will fall into place. All these other things will be added unto us. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's the beginning. That's, they say the new year, new beginnings. The beginning of this year, we should make it our ambition to fear the Lord. Do we want to be wise? Hopefully we do. If we want to make right decisions, if we want to be profitable in our families, in our businesses, in our work, in our health, finances, whatever it may be, may our ambition be to fear the Lord. That's where it all starts. Now, what is ambition? Glad you asked. Here's a dictionary definition. A strong desire to do or achieve something typically requiring determination and hard work. 
People are very ambitious in our world for many different things. Many of them come down to one thing, and that's money. That's why Jesus spoke of money perhaps almost more than anything else, because that is at the forefront of people's minds. And that's the background of Matthew 6, where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. The Gentiles, they're seeking clothing. They're seeking money. They're seeking um, all sorts of different uh, things in life. He's saying, you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. So any desires, any resolutions, any ambitions, the first and foremost should be to fear the Lord. I love the way David puts it. Psalm 27 verse four. One thing he says, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Okay, David, if you're going to ask for one thing, what is it going to be? To dwell in God's temple, to meditate on him, meditate on him and his beauty. And he starts off that Psalm in verse one by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Essentially, he's saying throughout that psalm, I'm not going to fear anyone, anything but the Lord. I want to dwell in his temple. I want to meditate on, on him. I want to fear him. Psalm 145, 19 says, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Do you want God to hear your prayers? Do you want him to be attentive, to give a listening ear to your heart and your cries? Fear the Lord. Here's one way that the fear of the Lord can be described. Because if you tell a non-believer to fear the Lord, they're not really going to understand that. Most believers maybe question what that means. I've even heard of someone my wife told me about that claimed to be a Christian and said, but I don't fear the Lord anymore. Or we don't really talk about the fear of the Lord. We talk about the love of God and loving God, but we don't talk about fearing him. Gill's exposition describes fearing the Lord in this way. It's an awe and reverence of the divine being joined with love to him and a desire to serve and worship him in right manner. No sooner is a man converted, but presently there is in him a fear of offending God from a principle of love to him. You want to love him. You want to please him. You want to honor him and glorify him for who he is because he's an awesome God. The scripture describes him as an all-consuming fire. And when you read the Old Testament, when God comes down on Mount Sinai with Moses, and Moses, it says, is in f- with fear and trembling, he approaches the mountain, and God says, if anything, if anyone gets close to this mountain, they will die. And there's a fear over all of Israel, and Moses goes down the mountain after being with God 40 days and 40 nights, and his face is shining He has to put a veil over his face because he was with God, who is light, who is a consuming fire. And so the scripture all throughout tells us that we should fear and tremble before this holy God, not fear that he's going to throw us into hell anytime we mess up in life, not to fear that we've lost our salvation because maybe we've sinned. If we're repenting, if we're confessing our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. So we're not fearing his wrath. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we're fearing who he is in all consuming fire. Over the last two weeks, it's been my goal to finish my Bible reading plan. So I guess you could say that's been my resolution every year is to get through reading the Bible year after year for the last couple years. Because prior to that, couple before a couple years ago, I never really read through the whole Bible. And I thought, man, I've been a Christian all these years and I don't know that I've ever read through the Bible. I need to start making a habit of actually knowing what's in the scripture my, for myself. And so this year I got a little behind and kind of a lot behind. And I read the Bible every day but I tend to leave in my Bible reading plan like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, some of the minor prophets. And at this time I left Ezekiel, kind of, I didn't get to those because I keep going through Hebrews and some of Paul's epistles and I'll meditate on the Psalms. And so 
as the year's coming to a close, I'm looking at my Bible reading plan and I'm like, oh, I still have 60 days worth in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Ezekiel and maybe I can get these 60 days worth into two weeks. And maybe that's why I got sick because I was trying to read so much and my brain just exploded. I don't know. And by the way, being sick is no fun because I remember as a kid, I didn't really care like if I was sick. At least that's my recollection. It's like you get sick, you still go to school, I could still play sports and get over it. And now that I'm older, I'm just like, either the vitamins aren't working or I'm just, I don't know what it is, but (laughs) I'm like, I do not enjoy being sick. But praise God, I'm feeling a little bit better today, but I I may not sound like it, but Nevertheless, I tried to get through my Bible reading plan, and um, let's just say I didn't quite make it, but God's patient with us. But what gave me the title of the teaching today and the topic of fearing the Lord is as I was reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, those were two that were still on my plan. And as I was reading through Nehemiah, the theme of the fear of God and the fear of the Lord in both of these men, Ezra and Nehemiah, struck me. These two bold, faithful, obedient, courageous men that the Lord used to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And they were both commissioned with different tasks from the Lord. And Ezra, when he found out that the Jewish people were disobedient to the Lord when they were marrying foreign women, the scripture tells us that Ezra pulled out his own hair. And he pulled out his hair. It says he tore his robe. He sat down and he was appalled. And right after that, it says he was embarrassed. And he he couldn't even lift up his head to the Lord, it says. Yet he lifted up his hands and he cried out to the Lord. And he said, Lord, forgive us for our iniquities and our sins. And that shows you his humility and his fear of the Lord that he wasn't even the one that was partaking in these sins. Yet on behalf of the people, he felt embarrassed and ashamed before the Lord to even lift up his head to the Lord and cry out to him. Nehemiah in similar circumstances, he pulled out the hair of other people, the scripture says. So it's a good way to remember both of them. Ezra pulled out his own hair. Nehemiah pulled out other people's hair. And so that's how I remember them. And it's because he was angry. He took it into his own hands, and we're going to read about it in a little bit. And uh, that's not what I'm saying to do today. Fear the Lord and go pull out your neighbor's hair when they don't obey the Lord. But you're going to see how seriously Nehemiah in particular took the fear of the Lord. Now, Ezra was a priest and a scribe, and he was skilled in the law of Moses, the scripture says, and Nehemiah was a cupbearer. So two different men, two different tasks men that were commissioned in two different ways, different giftings, and yet they both feared the Lord. They both honored him and were faithful to carry out and complete his work. And we need more men like that today. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Look at men like myself, Paul says, faithful men, follow the pattern that you see in us. Observe it and follow it. And that's what we need in our lives. There's many young men and even young women that are looking to people online as role models. If you go on, I think it's Instagram or Twitter, Cristiano Ronaldo has 526 million followers. The most followed person in the world on one social media site. And you see women like Kylie Jenner and um, Ariana Grande and these girls and these guys grow up and idolize these people. And I only know that because I looked it up last night or else I don't even know who they're following these days. And I've lost track of many, uh, much of it. But we, people need role models. These young people need role models. We need role models. And that's why Paul told the church, follow me and follow men like me. Ultimately, follow Christ. But Nehemiah, Ezra, God gives us great role mo- models all throughout Scripture. And I'm afraid a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, we don't know about them. And today, hopefully, I can show you what a great role model Nehemiah is for us, that we can follow his, exam- his example in this new year. And so, just as these men were commissioned with a task, They were commissioned to rebuild the temple. As I mentioned, rebuild the wall 2,500 years ago. Now, 2,500 years later, God has a task for all of us. 
And that's something that I want you guys to ask the Lord today. Lord, what is your will for my life, right? Perhaps you ask that question a lot. Lord, what's your will for my life? What's your desire for me? Where do you want me? But I think that's a healthy question to ask the Lord from time to time. Lord, here, here I am, like Isaiah, send me. Here's my work. Here's my finances. Here's my family, Lord. Here's my gifts. How do you want me to serve your church, Lord? How do you want me to better serve my family? How do you want me to better bless those that I work with? Here's my finances, Lord. What would you like me to do with that? And some people, like the rich young ruler, God says, sell it all, give it to the poor and follow me. You want to be blessed? Go do that. No, not everyone. He's not telling us all here to sell everything we have and live on the streets. But when we're talking about having a good budget, as one of those New Year's resolutions mentioned, build a better budget, well, for some people, that means just make a ton of money. Well, what was Jesus' budget? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He gave it all up for us, to bless us. And the scripture says he was rich, yet became poor so that we might become rich. He gave up his riches and became poor. So for some of us, we need to be wise with our finances by saying, Lord, how can I get rid of them? And so it looks different in our different lives. It ultimately comes down to submitting to the Lord and his will, seeking him daily and walking in the spirit. So, I want to take a closer look at Nehemiah's example. We're going to read quite a bit of the book of Nehemiah in just a couple minutes. But before that, just a quick survey of the fear of the Lord in scripture. Job chapter 28, verse 12 and 13. In this chapter, Job is contemplating wisdom and he asks the questions, where can wisdom be found in Job 28, 12 and 13? He says, where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. In verse 15, he says, pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it. In verse 18, he says, the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. And then in verse 20, again, he says, where, where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? I mean, isn't that the question that we want answered? Don't we want to be wise with every part of our lives? He concludes in Job 28, 28, and he says, this is how God has answered man. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. It's all throughout the Old Testament. The Greek, or the Hebrew word there for fear, I think is used over 300 times in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's used of the fear of man, and sometimes it's used of the fear of the Lord. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. That's God's declaration to the world. Let all the world fear him. Psalm 34, 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. Do we want to be content with what we have as the scripture calls us to? Then fear the Lord. I love the prayer in Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. He's pleading with the Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now contrast that with Psalm 36, 1. It says, transgression speaks to the ungodly with his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Paul repeats that in Romans 3.18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Transgression or sin speaks to the ungodly within his heart. I looked up a couple scandals from 2022, and there was many to thumb through. Here's two. Cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Perhaps you've heard of it. And its CEO, San Bankman Fried Freed, saw his $26 billion empire, empire crumble overnight. Due to fraud and deceit, ripped off many, don't know all the details, know that he was arrested at one point, may go to trial, may, may get arrested again, I don't know. According to an NPR.com article, more than one million people may have lost their money in the spectacular collapse of the cryptocurrency trading firm. Some say they lost millions of dollars because of this scam, fraud, 
deceit that was involved with this person. Transgression speaks to the ungodly with his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Here's one more. Theranos, perhaps you've heard of this business. Initially heralded as an innovative healthcare technology company opened by 19-year-old Elizabeth Holmes. It was valued at $10 billion by 2014. She was getting these massive investors with massive amounts of money. I think Rupert Murdoch was one of them to pour in millions and millions and millions of dollars into this health organization. Well, it was exposed as a fraud. Investors lost millions of dollars in homes and the president of the company, Ramesh Bhavani, were sentenced this last year to over 10 years in prison each because the fear of God is not before their eyes. When you do not fear the Lord, you do not live wise lives, a wise life, right? You make decisions that are not pleasing to the Lord, and the scripture says your sin will find you out. Their ambition, however, was greed, self-indulgence, lust, as John calls it in 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, which is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that was just two. We could have gone on and on and on. And those are just the people that are getting caught, by the way. There's so many that aren't getting caught that God sees and either will get caught at some point or will stand before the Lord and give an account for their life. So that's the opposite of fearing the Lord. The opposite of fearing the Lord leads to stupidity, foolishness, selfishness, emptiness, destruction. Some of you say, we don't use that word in our house, right? Stupid, stupidity. But the scripture does. There's a man named Agar in Proverbs 30, verse 2 and 3, and he admittedly says, and confesses that he doesn't fear the Lord. And this is what he says in Proverbs 30, verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. It's a pretty embarrassing confession, isn't it? Hopefully that won't be said of any of us, not in this year to come or for the rest of our lives. And what's the key? Once again, the key is to fear the Lord. Lord, unite my heart to fear you so that that will not have to be said about any of us. So let's get back to Nehemiah. I want to give you five ways Nehemiah made it his ambition to fear the Lord. Five ways Nehemiah made it his ambition to fear the Lord and why you and I should as well. So if you can find the book of Nehemiah with me in the Old Testament... We're going to read quite a bit of this book. I'm going to see if you're awake this morning. I know you stayed up late, most of you. But we're going to start off the new year by reading the word together. And let me preface this by saying, before I give you my first point, Nehemiah desperately needed help. As we're going to read, the wall of Jerusalem was broken down. Its gates were burned with fire. Nehemiah was in a foreign land. The land of Iran today is where Nehemiah is when this book begins. He's in Iran because the sins of his people, God scattered them throughout the earth. And he's sorrowful and he's aching and he's distressed and he's in desperate need of help. And that's many of our situations in life apart from the Lord. And even with the Lord is we still need his help desperately every single day. And the moment you think that you don't need his help, and this is like a main point that I feel like I always bring up in my teachings. At least it's a main point in, in my prayer life as I'm spending time with the Lord is Lord help. I think it's Psalm 12, 1 where David literally cries out, Lord help, help me Lord and that's my prayer. Help me in my marriage, Lord. Help me raise my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Help me to be an example to them. Help me to love my church. Help me to pour into them the truth. Help me to preach the word faithfully. Help me to love them, Lord, to care for them, to pray for them more. Help me. There's so many things, Lord, that I need help with in my life. And if I'm fearing him, if I'm trembling before him, if I'm loving him, I can be at peace because I know that he's going to come through and help me. And that's the predicament that Nehemiah is in when this book begins. 
He even says in chapter 2, verse 17, you see the bad situation we are in. He's talking to his countrymen. Don't you see this bad situation we're in? Let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. Did you guys all find it? Either on your phone in 2023. That might be the majority of us now. Or in the Bible, your actual Bible, the book. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hel. Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. So this is around November. It's the end of the year. November, December, and like I said, in Iran territory. Modern day Iran. Verse 2, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there is in the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you did command your servant Moses. Remember your word, which you did command your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there. I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are your servants and your people whom you did redeem by your great power and by a strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and to make your servant and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. All right. My first point. First and foremost, Nehemiah shows his am- ambition to fear the Lord by pleading with the Lord. That's how you honor God. That's how you show that you are in awe of him by the way you pray. If our prayers are stale and stagnant, Perhaps we're not fearing him as we should. And as you read through the book of Nehemiah and even in chapter one and verses five and 11 in particular, he's pleading with the Lord. The Hebrew word is Anna. It means a strong entreaty. It means to beg. It means to plead. The NASB that I have says it this way. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven. Some translations say, please, O Lord, or I pray, or I beseech you, as I mentioned. He's begging the Lord in verse 5, and he says that the Lord is a great and awesome God. That word can also be translated fearful. The Good News translation states verse 5 this way, Lord God of heaven, you are great, and we stand in fear of you. And in verse 11, he says that same Hebrew word, Anna, again, O Lord, I beseech you. When you read through chapter after chapter of Nehemiah, as we're going to read several chapters, you're going to see him constantly go back to the Lord with whatever is going on in his life at the time. He's crying out to God. But when you look at verse 11, second part of the verse, where he says, your servants and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Some translations say to desire Remember, ambition is a desire. It's a a desire that you work hard after something. And Nehemiah is saying, your servants, Lord, we want to be ambitious. 
We delight, we take pleasure in fearing your name above all else. Because then after that, he says, grant us success. Grant us compassion. Yes, we want to rebuild this wall. Yes, we want to restore Jerusalem. Yes, we want our brothers to be united and restore the priesthood and restore the tithes and restore order in the land. That is a huge ambition, Lord, that we want to carry out in our lives. But above all that, Lord, may our ambition be, may our delight be to fear you. And that's basically what I'm getting at today, verse 11. That should be our prayer, 2023, 2024, 2050, however long the Lord allows us to live. Lord, my delight is to fear you. Now, Lord, here are my ambitions in life. Grant me success in my marriage. Grant me success at my work. Grant me success in my family life, relationships, wherever you have me, Lord, may it prosper. May it be successful. But number one, May I fear you. Point number two. Nehemiah's ambition to fear the Lord outweighed, conquered, drove out all other fears. He remained obedient to the Lord. Let's look at chapter two, verse one. It says, then it came about in the month of Nisan. Now we're March, April, new year came about in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. He was doing the best he could not to have his countenance fall before the king because if you keep in mind chapter one, that would be hard to do, right? And many commentators say this was three or four months later after the prayer in verse 11. So he says at the end of verse one, now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. The king knew him too well. And verse two closes out, then I was very much afraid. And for some, the story would end there. Then I was very much afraid. And I did not say anything to the king. And I continued to be the cupbearer the rest of my life till the late years of my life and I was scared to tell the king what was on my heart because perhaps he would throw me in jail or kill me or wouldn't grant my petition. And some people allow fear to grab hold of their hearts and don't do what God has called them to do and not be obedient to the Lord. Praise God, there's more verses in the book of Nehemiah, verse three. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. And as you read throughout the rest of the story, we'll read more, but as you read to the end, you see these names over and over, Sanballat and Tobiah. They are like flies on his food, so to speak. They are annoyances in his life to the end of the book. And they continue to harass and frighten and try to scare Nehemiah and his countrymen to get them to not rebuild the wall and to get them to not be obedient to the Lord, to scare them so that they will not fear God and carry out his will. 
Many of us have Sanballats and Tobias in our lives. And maybe they're not physical people, but the Bible says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. Pastor Joe, I think, quoted that verse so many times over 30 years that I was there that I memorized it just by listening, I think, to him. We can tend to do that when we hear things, and that's why it's good to have God's word just on your lips at all times because when you're speaking it, it will just catch. And so that's just a side note there. But the enemy is still raging. And, the, and there's many pictures in the Old Testament in Nehemiah as they're battling these physical people. In the New Testament, we're battling not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. I mean, Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God. Not literal armor, but metaphorical armor. Get the sword of the Spirit out, which is the word of God. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. All these analogies in the New Testament of fighting and struggling and warfare, which in the Old Testament they actually carried out. David and Goliath and Joshua and the Canaanites and Nehemiah here with Sanballat and Tobiah. If you turn to chapter 4 with me, let's just see what Sanballat and Tobiah had to say about Nehemiah and this commission that he was on, this task that the Lord had given him. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1. It came about that when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. You can imagine them kind of laughing and chattering together. Look at these fools. Look at these, these mediocre peasants, so to speak. Look at these Jewish people. They're not really going to do this. Verse 4, what is Nehemiah's response? Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity. Let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said the strength of the burden bears is falling or failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Verse 12. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Are you still with me? Verse 15, and it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, that all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. And it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. 
Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work, with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. We each took his weapon even to the water. I wanted to read much of this and believe it or not, even a little bit more because I think it's just so rich and so powerful, the determination that he was laser focused to fulfill the will of the Lord, that he was going to obey the Lord at all costs, that even though people around him were fearful and afraid and saying, look, they're going to come, even 10 times they're going to come and kill us, Nehemiah said, no, Uh uh-uh. Remember, God is for us. He is great and awesome, and God will fight our battles. We need more people like that in the church. When people are weary, when they're down, when they're defeated, when they have struggles in life, when you're failing to conquer sin, we need men and women that rise up like Nehemiah and say, no, God will fight for us. And say, remember that it's the Lord who is great and awesome. Point number three. Nehemiah's ambition to fear the Lord led to holy anger in his life. Nehemiah chapter five, verse one. There was great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Verse 6, then I was very angry. When I heard their outcry and these words, I consulted with myself and I contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury, each each one from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? So when you read the scripture, Jesus turned over tables, right, because of sin in the temple, made a court of whips, drove out the animals, drove out all the money changers because of sin. You read about John the Baptist confronting Herod. That's why he got thrown into jail, and ultimately his head was chopped off because Herod had his brother's wife, and John said, that's not acceptable. You're in sin, and he rebuked him. He called him out. You read in 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 21, Paul says to the Corinthian church, shall I come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? When men and women of God are confronted with sin, their response shouldn't be, that's okay. Particularly unrepentant sin. And particularly unrepentant sin in the presence of people's lives that claim to be a follower of God, that claim to love God. And so when you read Nehemiah, this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his righteous indignation. 
when it says here that he was very angry and he called these people aside and said, knock off this usury and this high interest rates and treat your brothers fairly. It actually gets a little crazier. If you turn with me to Nehemiah 13, I just want to show you how seriously Nehemiah took sin. And as you're turning to Nehemiah 13, listen to Proverbs 8:13. It says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. If you fear the Lord, you're to hate evil. You're not to ha be indifferent towards evil. You're to hate it. You're to hate sin. So in Nehemiah 13, 7, Nehemiah, this book actually takes place over 20, a 25-year period. Nehemiah goes back and forth from where he's at in modern-day Iran and Babylon back to Jerusalem. And here is where he goes back after a period of time to Jerusalem. And he says in Nehemiah 13, 7, I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. So I love that. He goes back to Jerusalem, sees that this evil man, Tobiah, that's been against him the entire story, he goes in the house, throws all his stuff out, and says, you have no place amongst us. He doesn't stop there, though. Verse 10. I also discovered that portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. If you read verse 15, he talks about how he admonished these men for not practicing the Sabbath. Let's pick it back up at verse 17. Chapter 13, 17 says, Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that just as it grew dark, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. So he says, all the gates need to be shut. No more of these goods are coming in. That's my order. And yet as you continue to read on, it says that those who were selling these goods said, okay, we'll just sleep outside of the gates. We'll just wait for these gates to open. Perhaps they will. And in verse 21, Nehemiah says, Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. So he's restoring law and order. Nehemiah was given the title of governor. And he's coming in and he's coming back to Jerusalem and seeing all these evil things. And he's not indifferent like, oh, that's just okay. Grace, you know, grace, grace, grace. No, he's going, I fear the Lord. I honor the Lord. This is dishonoring the Lord. This is against God's law. I'm taking action. And even severe action, as we'll see in verse 25, when he finds out that they married foreign women, it says, so I contended with them and cursed them and st struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made some of them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? He's saying the land is becoming polluted. God told us in the law not to intermarry. It's going to bring in foreign practices, foreign gods, worship of foreign idols. And so instead of just telling them that, well, he did that, but he also contended with them, cursed them, struck them, pulled out their hair. Pretty amazing. Some commentators say, well, he ordered others to do it according to the law. But when I read verse 25, it seems as though as if he's doing it himself. As governor, he's taking these things into his own hands. And by the end of the story, verse 30, he says, thus I purified them from everything foreign 
and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. He was faithful. Doesn't look the same today. We're not John the Baptist. We're not Jesus. We're not the Apostle Paul. We're not Nehemiah. We're not a governor. We're not to go around being sin snitchers, so to speak, and, and doing these kind of things. But we are to be looking out for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are to be angry and hate sin in our own lives, first and foremost, and hate sin in other people's lives as well. And in the New Testament, Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye first, right? And so I joke with my wife about that, but it's funny when you preach, certain things come to your mind and you have to say, wait a second, I don't know if I can share that. So, but remove that log out of your own eye first, right? And some of us, man, it's hard to see because we have that, but we're very quick to point out things in others' lives. But if you read throughout the book of Nehemiah, as we have much of it, you see that he's praying constantly throughout it. You see that he's a man who fears and loves God, and then he takes action. And I think that's what we need to do from a place of humility, from a place on our knees, from a place of crying out to the Lord, Lord, I hate the sin in my own life. Purify me. Make me holy before you, Lord. Now help me to share that with others. Help me to point out areas in their life. You know, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, which I quote often, that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach and patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And that was so important to me, because I do see people online saying, I'm contending earnestly for the faith as they're throwing grenades at people metaphorically and they're ripping people apart and they're tearing them down and they're just very negative and they're saying, yeah, but I'm contending. And some will even point to someone like Nehemiah or some of the reformers and say, see how they contended. And I say, see how the scripture tells Timothy to treat everyone with kindness, with gentleness, those who are in opposition to treat them with care. Don't cower away from the truth. Be bold and courageous with the truth. But yet people see Jesus' example of flipping over tables and somehow think that that's what they're to do as well. It does take wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Certain circumstances call for certain measures, but generally speaking in the church, right? Let's take the log out of our own eye, take the speck out of our brother's eye with care, do these things with gentleness and respect. Point number four. Got two more points. Nehemiah's ambition to fear the Lord led to self-sacrificial love. You say, where are we going to go? We just read the end of the book. Back to chapter five. Just a couple more verses in the middle that we didn't cover. Chapter five, verse 14. Moreover, from that day, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. For 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. He says, this is why I didn't take the governor's allowance. This is why I could have, perhaps. That's, this is what other governors did. This is what other people in power did. But I'm not going to do that because I fear the Lord. I honor God. I want to live a life pleasing to him. And if my conscience is tainted, I'm not going to do it. Is that how we live? Hopefully, that's the case. So in this year to come, how can we live self-sacrificially towards others. Practically speaking, how can we lay aside privileges or rights for the benefit of others? That's what it says of Jesus in Philippians 2.7. He emptied himself. He laid aside his divine privileges and took on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of a man. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.13, if what I eat causes my brother to stumble... I won't eat meat again. 
so that it will not cause anyone to stumble. He's like, I'll give up meat. I'll give up wine. I'll give up this. I'll g- I just want to see people edified, blessed, encouraged, no obstacles in front of my brothers and sisters. How can we do that practically in the year ahead? Something to think about. Last point. Number five, Nehemiah's ambition to fear the Lord kept him unshakable to the end. Nehemiah 6, verse 9. Nehemiah 6, 9, and following for all them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done, but now will God strengthen my hands. And I just can't help but think this is a, a metaphor of our lives throughout this story that people in this world, the demonic realm are going to try to frighten you, to try to keep you anxious, to try to get you from doing what God has called you to do. And this physical picture for us could be a spiritual reality in our lives. And the prayer though is the same. Lord, strengthen my hands as Nehemiah says in verse nine. Verse 10, when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah and Metabel, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? Could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works of theirs and also Nodiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Verse 15, so the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. 52 days it took them to build this wall. Josephus, who was an early first century historian, said it took two years and four months. Yet all the commentators I read said, Nehemiah said, 52 days. Why are we to doubt that? And historians came later on and said he couldn't have done it in that short amount of time. And when you get God out of the picture, of course, you could say that. But with God, all things are possible. 52 days determined. They built this wall. In verse 16, a couple more verses as we close. It came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounded us saw it, they lost confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And the word confidence mean, comes from confide, with faith. They lost faith. They lost trust. Nehemiah's faith was strengthened throughout the book. His trust in the Lord strengthened as he feared the Lord more. He trusted God more and continued to be obedient. And the opposite could be said of his enemies. Verse 17, also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, the son of Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Okay. I wanted to stop there. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. The wall's rebuilt now. You think the story's over, and yet Tobiah, he just will not give up. He's just persistent, relentless against this man, Nehemiah. And of course, by this point, Nehemiah is just rock solid, unshakable. Psalm 125.1 says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. That's my heart for you and I in this year to come, that you'd be like Mount, Mount Zion, unshakable. No matter what comes your way, no matter what the enemy throws at you this year, no matter what struggles, no matter what fights that you have against sin and Satan, the enemies of this world, that you would be as what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. 
that verse pretty much summarizes everything we read today, the book of Nehemiah, and hopefully your life and my life. Because if we're honest, life can be hard at times. There are struggles in this world, and there always will be a Sanballat and a Tobias, even as the wall was already rebuilt, yet he was persistent to the end. And as long as you have air in your lungs, as long as you're breathing, the enemy is after you and I. And we need to be like Nehemiah, on our knees, crying out, pleading that the Lord would hear our cry, and first and foremost, that we would fear him above all else. And after that, that he would grant us success in whatever we do. So the book starts in great distress, walls broken down, city on fire. The book of Nehemiah closes with the tithes being restored, the Sabbath being restored, the priesthood being restored, the Jewish people being united, all because, and the wall being fortified and strengthened, all because God used this humble cupbearer who said, I want to fear you. It's my ambition to fear you above all else. That's my goal for us this year to come, that we would fear him above all else and allow him to guide and direct our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. Lord, without you and your word, where would we be? It's our roadmap in life, Lord. Give us hunger and thirst for your word. As your word says that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord, that we would be satisfied in Christ, that we would realize that in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. May we grow in our love for you. May we grow in our fear of you. And Lord, may we look back at last year and look at things perhaps, Lord, that we didn't do that were quite pleasing to you or we didn't do it the right way according to your word, Lord. We thank you that you cleanse us and you forgive us. Help us in this year to come to live bold, courageous, faithful, obedient lives, knowing that you love us, you care for us, and you have a plan for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.